and we'll have about 120 live. All right, you're live. Okay, great. Live Q&A from what we're calling the Canary Roadshow. Canary Roadshow. Right. So this week we're in Arlington, Texas, a couple 20 minutes, give or take, from our office in Farmer's Branch. Uh, Jeff Nepper from Canary Labs is our, our guest this week for our community spotlight. Um, so Jeff, you have the honor of telling us all about yourself today. <laughs> and, um, and why don't we start with who you are and who you work with? Yeah, awesome. So uh, thank you. Hello, everybody. My name is Jeff Nepper. I work as the executive director of uh, business development uh, for Canary and have been with them now for, we we're actually just talking about this, I think maybe five or six years. And you and I have known each other now for four, four years. Yeah. Four years. Yeah. We met at CSIA yeah. many years ago. I was originally trying to forge a partnership between you and a, another vendor because I thought you guys had the superior historian in the market. I still believe that. Um, in fact, you've proved it time and time again over the last four years. Your background is in what? Well, <laughs> obviously, because I'm kind of top level on uh, databases with an industrial automation slant, obviously, my background has nothing to do with industrial automation or databases. Um, but as you know, my background is really sales small business management, and uh, I got my start uh, in the automotive industry. And many of you probably are like, yeah, I work in the automotive industry. No, no, no. <laughs> I was selling, financing, and then ultimately running Honda dealerships and uh, loved it. I mean, I loved every part of the relational side of that job. Um, what I didn't like so much, as many of you are going to uh, relate to, was the hours. Uh, I was not cut for 60 hour work weeks and uh, late nights away from my family and had an awesome opportunity to get to know the guys at Canary uh, actually through our through my local church. The founders and I were in the same church and my son's best friend, his dad worked for Canary. Um, we were out to dinner one night and we were talking about pie. I thought we were talking about dessert. We were not. <laughs> uh, he was talking about he was scratching his head and complaining that Canary could not make up market share on OSI soft pie. And my business brain started asking him questions. Like, well, tell me about pie. What are they good at? What's okay. Okay. I get it. They're a database. They collect sensor data. This makes sense. Um, tell me about Canary. What's Canary good at? And I started to hear some things that got my, my opportunity brain really starting to peak. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me that your product has better performance, it's got a better business model, it's all this, and the market share is so unequally balanced, right? This to me sounds like a messaging problem. Um, and that began my journey um, to start talking to the owners at Canary. And I spent, I spent two or three months of my life scared to death to make that transition because I don't know anything about databases. I don't know anything about automation. I didn't know this field was even a field until I went to dinner with my friend. Um, so I took, my, I took my day off each week and started going to Canary for eight hours and trying to learn the process, trying to learn the product. Um, I knew within the first three days that I was gonna switch. And the reason that I knew was the very first time I ever sat down with the trending tool at the time, it was just trending with Axiom, um, 
I knew how to use it. I knew how to use it. And I had watched a couple of YouTube videos on some other training solutions in the marketplace, and I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And I thought to myself in that moment, if here I am not knowing the first thing about the industry, if I can use the tools in 30 minutes, and if the database does what they say the database does, and if the company is willing to pivot where they need to pivot and be disruptive in the space, this is where I want to live. And uh, I jumped all in. Awesome. So real quick, so for the audience um, in the chat, please, please let us know, A, do you know who Canary is? And B, do you work with Canary Solution? For us at 4.0 Solutions and Intellic, Canary, we've, in all of our production environments, Canary has been the historian we've been using for the last four years outside of benchmarking OSI Pi and other options. Um, Canary Labs is the, is the really the only historian we use now. We benchmark OSI Pi about every six months, give or take. We benchmark InfluxDB. Um, we, in, we benchmark time, benchmark timescale about every six months, give or take. Um, for us, you know, if you're a member of our community, you hear us talking about Canary Labs historian all the time. Um, the genius of Canary Labs is, uh, it really boils down to two things from my perspective. Number one, they've mastered the art of being able to compress and store and retrieve just massive, massive amounts of data um, using a minimal amount of disk IO and a, and a minimal amount of storage space. That's, that's where the real intellectual property is. This week, you guys are doing the Canary Road Show. We have a bunch of people in the audience here that you guys can't see because we don't have releases to show you who they are. So, um, but this room is full of people who are watching us do this interview. Um, they're all here learning about Canary Labs. So, the room that we're in right now is the advanced session. So everyone in this room should be familiar with who Canary Labs is and they're working with it. The other room is the beginners. Um, they're learning all about Canary Labs. but. When people ask me why Canary Labs, I say, number one, they just, they're the, the intellectual property that they've developed in compressing and retrieving just massive amounts of data is, makes them best in class in the market. Number two, it is the focus on open. And uh, Ken is not in here, but he had mentioned something earlier in the presentation about how Canary's core technology has not changed since 1985, right? The intellectual property, that core technology is the same as it is today as it was in 85. It's the way that the other ancillary tools interact with Canary's core technology that's fundamentally changed. Right. Why don't you tell us how Canary has changed since you joined Canary? Yeah. So six years ago or however long. Yeah. So one of the great things about being an outsider is that you question everything when you come to the table. Um, there is no status quo for you because everything is brand new and everything you're looking at, you're saying, well, why do we do it this way, right? Why do we do it that way? Um, and so even though I didn't have that background, I was able to add value to the team immediately by just asking fundamental questions of that nature, um, specifically around business model. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were able to very quickly in the last, I'd say, six years, uh, add some major, major data contextualization components. Um, so the historian technology, as you mentioned, is essentially the same methodology since the mid-90s with constant architectural improvements and technology improvements, but uh, the same fundamental architectures. Um, but it's what we do on top of that archive that really starts to get special. Uh, we were talking with the group an hour ago, you know, what makes an enterprise application? 
Canary for years was known as a go-to site localized historian with a really good trending tool called Trendlink. Um, we've kind of shot all that to pieces and built all new technologies around it so that it stacks up against any type of enterprise architecture you'd want to deploy it. So if I can just kind of list some bullet points. Um, is it scalable? Is it performant? Yes and yes. Single Canary server, two to three million tags before you would want to stand up a second server. Um, is it performant? Absolutely. No matter how long it's been in deployment, no matter how many tags are in it, you get the same write speeds, well over one and a half million consistent updates per second, uh, and the same read speeds, over two and a half million reads per second, continuous 24-7. Um, does it have contextualization tools? Yeah. Build out uh, tag aliasing, uh, asset modeling, calculation servers, event monitoring servers, all of these things that you need to take raw data and make it um, actionable, make it intelligent for your people to consume. Um, can we visualize based on asset models? Absolutely. Can we build multiple asset models? Absolutely. Can we get all of this data contextualized, mind you, out of Canary and into IBM Maximo? Can we get it into Spotfire? Can we get into our own home-built application? Absolutely. Does it have enterprise agreements available? Absolutely. So all of these boxes are what we've been adding for the last five years. We've been setting the stage to take the performance that we're known for and make it so that it's really easy to say, hey, I've got 2 million tags inside my organization. Here's the challenges that I have. How can we apply Canary to solve those problems? Excellent. So Mason, to answer your question, um, so Mason, who's one of our members of the community, asked a question. I've used Wonderware Historian before, which is SQL-based. I'm interested in learning about Canary and the time series DB pros and cons versus SQL-based. All right, at the enterprise level, um, there is absolutely no reason to use a SQL-based historian. It's, it's, uh, that's just bad architecture. Um, is, is the Wonderware Historian SQL-based though, or is it just for the event engine? It's just for the event engine, but he's asking specifically pros and cons. Uh, by the way, uh, Wonderware Historian, and I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that it's going away. Uh, Aviva did not purchase OSI Pi so that they could have their own product to compete against the product they just purchased. All right. So OSI Pi is going to become the de facto Wonderware uh, Historian. So when we talk about the two predominant historians in the United States, uh, well, really globally, but in the United States was what I care about. You have OSI Pi and you have Canary Labs. Uh, I know that Jeff is a really super polite guy and all that kind of thing, and he's never going to say anything bad about OSI Pi. So these are my statements and my statements alone. I'm the asshole here. So uh, why, why is Canary um, superior to OSI Pi? Uh, the answer is this. Um, OSI Pi supports technologies, open technologies like OPC and MQTT, et cetera, et cetera. But OSI Pi assumes that it's going to consume data, it's going to process data, transform it, you're going to be able to visualize it, and then you're going to use some OSI Pi or OSI partner software to visualize it or, or pre present the information to someone. There's no mechanism inside of OSI Pi by default to share the context that is created with an ecosystem. So that is in Canary, 
Canary can consume that historical data. It can run aggregations. It can do all sorts of statistical analysis on that data. You can create new calculations and it is designed to share that new context into an ecosystem out of the box. One of the biggest challenges that I'll illustrate is this. We have clients who use OSI Pi, which is a good, great historian. I'm not saying anything bad about it, but why is it we choose Canary over OSI Pi? It has to do with the openness of the technology. If I'm gonna create context at the historian later, I'm gonna create calculations, I'm gonna create visualizations, I'm gonna do statistical analysis. It is a mistake to assume that the data, the information that you create through that analysis should be limited to just the historian and its partner applications, right? Industry 4.0, digital transformation is all about creating this ecosystem. Canary Labs was designed to fit into an ecosystem OSI Pi is designed to fit into its partner's ecosystem. That's the fundamental difference, right? So let me ask you this one, this, uh, one last question before we get over and start answering all of our questions. Uh, let me actually, let me finish Mason's uh, answer here. Um, SQL-based historians are inefficient. When you get into the billion record, doesn't, you know, billion record space, you try to run a select statement against the billion records, it, there's a massive amount of latency to get that, or there's a ton of overhead and a massive amount of latency to get that data back. What Canary Labs and what OSI Pi and all, this, all of this superior technology use is what they do is they, they store the historical data, the data sets in flat files, which are able, you're able to write to and read from much, much faster than you can, you can from a database. What I love about Canary is that through the ODBC connector, you can, you can, you wouldn't know that you're interacting with a flat file. You would have no, you would have no idea that you're interacting with an actual flat file because you've, you've created a product that allows you to interact with it as if you're interacting with a SQL database. Long term, I don't think that that's going to be. It, it's going to play a big role in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely. But for today, it, it matters. It matters uh, greatly. And I would, Go ahead. I would just add also, you know, the only thing that we're keeping in our proprietary database is the actual, the raw data values. Raw because we never, never do anything with those. We leave them the way they are. It's important um, because we have the performance to do that. Uh, but the event monitoring, the asset modeling, uh, the calculations, everything else is configured and kept in SQL databases. Mm -hmm. And you have access to that. So you can interact with all the different pieces of contextualization, as well as the historical record. Um, all of your SQLite queries that you want to run. Another perfect example, in OSI Pi, the asset frames can't be shared. So when you create a model in, asset in using asset frames, you can't share those with external applications. You can share them through Pi to Pi connectors, right, through the ecosystem, the OSI Pi ecosystem, but you can't share that model that you created in OSI Pi externally. With Canary, you can. Part, there is, if you do modeling inside of Canary, I can consume that through your MQTT, a bunch of different ways, through the HDA connector, through the MQTT connector. There's lots of ways for me to consume that. And so, and, and that is the architecture that we designed. So um, Canary, so let's, let's plug Canary Labs since you guys invited us here and you gave us a shirt and all that kind of stuff. So um, if people wanna know more about Canary Labs, yeah. Uh, where should they go and what should they do? Yeah, um, you better find our website helpful. There's been a lot of time on that. Um, that's probably one of those strengths I brought to the table. So uh, canarylabs.com for starts, um, but uh, reach out to me, please, directly. 
Um, Jay Nepper at canarylabs.com. I'll leave it to Zach to do his little wizardry and put that somewhere. Um, can I just, one last comment on the pie side? Yeah. For five years, I've tried to become a pie partner. I would like Canary Labs to be a pie partner. So if you're on the pie side and you're hearing this, listen, pie has never lost a sale because of Canary Labs. Pie has only lost sales because of Pi's business model. Listen, if, if, if they were considering a $5 million budget, you got the sale, right? Right. Right. Our unlimited server with unlimited clients is $95,000. It's a whole different business strategy. My point is this, is that I'm not ever going to tell you that you should not have a Pi corporate historian. There's probably value for you and your engineering team of maybe having your Pi corporate historian for doing whatever it is that you're doing with it. But my point is, I would love for the Canary Labs historian, database, calculations, events, all of this, to be able to live inside of a Pi ecosystem. I would love for the Pi ecosystem to be able to live inside of Canary Labs. Because at the end of the day, and again, you can't see who's behind us, but no one in this room wants to be fixed to a Canary Labs platform. That's right. No one in this room wants to be fixed to a Pi platform. Um, the reason we're so involved in the Sparkplug, MQTT Sparkplug working group and community is because we believe in openness. And uh, that's, why, that's why all of our connectors, that's why our SDK is not licensed. That's why you can suck data out of Canary via all of our APIs without ever having to pay us a penny to do it because we want it to be open. So it's not a question of, for me, it's not a question of Pi versus Canary. It's a question of what tools do I want in my toolbox to solve the problems that I'm trying to solve. Um, it's who we are, it's what we stand for, and we think it's what, what, what you, I know it's what you stand for. Pretty sure it's what the people uh, behind the camera stand for, and I know it's the people in the room stand for. Awesome, and uh, Zach shared uh, Jeff's contact link in the chat. Uh, Tom Benola, uh, how is a historian different from a data lake? That's, <laughs> that's a long answer, um, but... <laughs> But um, we've had many times already today. Yes. Uh, so a, a data a, a historian um, specializes in time series data, and it specializes in the compression and retrieval of massive, massive amounts of time series data, particularly for statistical analysis and time series analysis. That is trending. Data lakes are just think of data lakes as the Grand Canyon and people walking up with garbage cans and dumping stuff into the Grand Canyon. That's what a data lake is. A data lake isn't optimized for anything. You're going to use tools like Kafka to do optimized streaming into a data lake. There's a, a data lake is a very generic uh, term for storing data in a SQL style format whereas a historian is optimized for massive amounts of either high speed, slow speed um, time series data. There's a significant difference between, um, and I see somebody's mentioned Kafka up here. Can Kafka be considered a historian? No, um, Kafka is not a historian, but it's used in conjunction with historians a lot. What Kafka really is, it's many things, but what you need to know within an IIoT infrastructure, Kafka and tools like it optimize uh, time series or data sets for streaming into data lakes. That's really what they, what Kafka does. Um, 
it does many other things, but for your purposes, that's what it matters. Yes, the Grand Canyon. Thank you, Cheryl. Grand Canyon is a perfect analogy. All right, so this is going to be a little awkward here. Zach is going to have to share our slide deck so I can answer the questions. So, Zach, you go ahead and start sharing because I'm actually not on the live stream today. All right, um, and then I'll go and... So question number one is uh, from Mazen. Um, so Mazen asked the question, I'm not entirely clear on what data ops is and why HiBite might be a good idea for a project. Uh, my best understanding at this time, and thank you to David Schultz, who, do I have permission to, sorry, yeah. oh, obviously, <laughs> cat's out of the bag. David Schultz is in the room with us today. Um, would it be okay if I mentioned you too? And Kevin also, so Dave, if you watch the, it's G5 Consulting, right? If you watch the G5 Consulting YouTube channel, Kevin and David are both here actually in the room with us. Um, thanks to David Schultz and Omar uh, Ahmed, who was our guest last week, um, is that it's a data modeling platform. So for example, if my PLCs are running a compressor or a burner, then I can use HiByte to build a data model for that equipment and then map the data that's being pulled from say, Kepware uh, into this compressor or burner model in preparation for use by other parts of the ecosystem. One burner may have been built by company A and controlled by Alan Bradley uh, or GuardLogix, uh, while, uh, uh, while another burner might be built by company B and be inside Siemens. Uh, we would use HiByte to model those equipment so that it's all normalized. Um, uh, normalization has to do with timestamps, so I'm just gonna correct that real quick. Um, it, it, I would say you would um, use HiByte to model that equipment so that it's congruent, that is it is, the models match one another, okay? So does that mean that HiByte also becomes a broker and a tag provider for the Ignition Vision, for example? Um, the answer is, is you could do it that way. And yes, it will absolutely be a broker once that is released uh, month after next. Um, I think Aaron should have a beta for us to test in April. That's what it's looking like. Uh, I don't know if I would use it as a tag provider in Ignition. Really what's gonna happen is HiByte is going to consume using connectors so uh, if you go to the Intelligence Hub, uh, uh, the HiByte website, you can go and look at the Intelligence Hub connections to see all the various connectors that they have. What HiByte does though, is HiByte consumes raw data through connectors and then transforms it using its modeling engine. It decides when to transmit the new models, the updated data through flows. And those flows are, allow you to create triggers. The beauty about HiByte and the reason we're so high on it is it's not the only modeling engine available. The reason we're so high on it is because it's being developed by the people who built Kepware. So Tony Payne, who Tony Payne, who is the president of HiByte, and John Harrington and Tori and Aaron Semley, Aaron's doing uh, most of the development. They're all former Kepware people. Tony is single-handedly responsible for turning Kepware into the company it is before the acquisition of PTC. There's no group of people on the planet more qualified to create the intelligence hub. They are literally the perfect team to create it. Um, and so the reason we're so high on it is they understand the challenges that people on the plant floor face when it comes to taking disparate, you know, I have two sensors that do exactly the same thing, or I have two processes that do exactly the same thing. But because I had two different PLC programmers write the automation, I ended up with two completely different namespaces that achieve the exact same functional result. You need a tool that will turn that into something congruent. So that's why we're so big on HiByte. In terms of architecture, what we would do, Mason, 
is we would take what the output from HiByte and publish that to our MQTT broker. We wouldn't really use it as a tag provider. Ignition will interact with the, the output from HiByte through the MQTT broker. But it is a great, great question. I think the yep. most difficult thing about HiByte is for them to frame and communicate what they do. Correct. And so it's when- very tough. Right. And so when people ask me, why did we, you know, I, I'm, I'm the guy who started Intellic Integration, but I don't work at Intellic Integration anymore. I work at 4.0 Solutions. 4.0 Solutions is our education and outreach arm. I'm, I, we are trying to educate the community, make them fluent in the terminology they need to be fluent in so that they can understand why HiByte is necessary. Everyone in our community gets it, right? Everyone in the community understands why a tool like HiByte is needed. The, the other beauty about HiByte is that they're developing it so it can be both an edge component and a centralized hub component. So the same intelligence hub can be running on a little tiny edge PC, uh, uh, industrial PC doing modeling on the edge for just one PLC or two PLCs, same direction you guys are going with Canary, right? With, with this later release of the, yeah. the sender receiver, right? Same concept, you'll have this distributed architecture. Not many organizations do that, right? You, they have separate solutions. If you look at Azure AWS, right? Let's use uh, Azure IoT Hub, for example. Azure has Azure IoT Edge, which is one, it is a, a product that is designed to run on the edge. And then it connects to Azure IoT Hub, which is a product that runs in the cloud. HiByte has the same intelligence hub running on the edge as it does running in the cloud. You will have the same sender receiver package running on the edge as you will have running in the cloud. That is the fundamental difference between most of the solutions we're seeing. Uh, I'll pick on another, um, like Litmus Automation, who I love, by the way, huge fan of Litmus Automation but Litmus uses the Azure model for their edge cloud services, whereas HiByte and Canary are using this, um, it, the, they're using a very similar model. What, you, what you're gonna run on the edge is the same thing you're gonna run centrally, okay? We have one flavor of our product. That's right. Um, so Mason asked another question. I'm wondering if HiByte has been used to model ERP data. The answer is yes. Say you have different warehouse management systems by different companies at different locations, but they're all concerned with management of warehouses and inventory. Would it make sense to model that kind of data as contrasted with modeling, say a burner or compressor? Has there been any implementations of something like that? Thank you. The answer is yes. So what, what Mason's asking here is, especially if you look at enterprises who are real big in M&A, mergers and acquisitions. If I'm a huge company and I buy a plant that I didn't build from scratch and it's already running its own separate ERP system or CMMS system, but I wanna unify those at the, at the enterprise level, I'm going to have to do some type of modeling for the master data model that's running in the ERP. So the answer is yes, it's exactly what, why HiByte exists. I didn't know why we had two back-to-back High bite questions. Um, also, I, I'm I will answer any questions here. So if anybody has any questions um, in the audience, we'll I'll I'll take them when we're done with this. Uh, Matt Prent, this he's from Denmark, right? Is this the guy in Denmark? Okay. Um, uh, some small practical issue. I'm looking how to connect a few Siemens S7300 PLCs to a unified namespace. The CP343 module looks like the obvious choice for connecting the PLC to industrial ethernet. Are there any options that I can consider? Okay, so the answer is 
The CP343, uh, there are two, basically two flavors of it. Um, I, ha I did, uh, I'll, I'll share the link uh, with Zach, but you've got the, uh, the Dash 1 and the EX20. There's a couple of minor differences between the two. Um, but to answer your question, I, the answer is yes, that's probably the best way to bring a 300 in because you're going to want to convert to Ethernet so that you're not going to have to deal with serial comps. I probably would upgrade the 300s. I, I mean, I would probably make the argument that we should invest in the in upgrading to probably 1200s, S7 1200s, which is our Siemens PLC of choice because it supports MQTT out of the box and they're highly cost effective. I think 500 bucks for the unit. Um, but there is another way to do it. We do it very commonly using IoT. Right. We end up using an edge gateway that talks to native S7 300 protocol over a driver, and then we convert it to MQTT on the edge. Uh, we'll be releasing a case study later this year. I referenced it here mm -hmm. about our water wastewater customer who's got 200 rigs and we're storing, you know, a thousand tags from each rigs at, you know, at, at one second intervals. The way that we achieve that, and actually Matt is here, the, the engineer who wrote our MQTT transmitter, the way that he actually achieved it was he, 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 is using a native Siemens driver on the edge. So out in the middle of nowhere. And when I say nowhere, I mean, you know, people die 10 feet away from these rigs and they never find the bodies because there's untouched land everywhere that these rigs are located. Um, he converts the native protocol to MQTT on the edge, just running on an edge PC, I think in a headless Linux implementation, right? Yep, and a headless Linux implementation and then transmits it over MQTT, over connections that are no faster than 275K a second. So the answer is, is there are several different options. If this is in a plant environment, I'm probably gonna go ahead and add the CP343. If it's um, out in a, like a serial network, I'm almost certainly gonna use an edge PC and get it converted into an MQTT um, protocol as quickly as humanly possible. Any questions that have popped up that I need to look at? No, but there was a lot of good answers on that question within the edge thread. Within yeah, there, and, and so let me take this as a moment to segue here. So I get this question all the time. So with what we teach about digital transformation in Industry 4.0, everyone will ask me, well, what you're teaching, isn't? aren't you essentially engineering out the need for integrators? They ask that question all the time, right? And I really laugh. I, I giggle because... The answer is, of course not. We, you, we will need more integrators. Integrators are going to move from doing things like point-to-point -point integration, right? There are so many things that manufacturers and, and um, you know, manufacturing and industry do not do because they don't have the time or the money. And the reason they don't have the time or the money is because we are not leveraging the right architectures and the right technology to solve their problems. We integrators will start working on making those architectural decisions. The, no, the CP343 is not the only way to integrate an S7300 into an IoT infrastructure. The, the integrator of the future is the solutions architect who's going to make the optimal decision about that integration, right? And then help you scale it. The, the idea that the integrator will go deep and stay long, you know, for, form a partnership with a manufacturer and just be their engineering arm, that will become a lot, uh, that will become a much smaller piece of our business going forward. 
and a much larger piece of our business is going to be solving the problems that they shelved for the last 30 years because of time and money. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Cheryl had a really good comment. Instead of trying to uh, pick solutions and then massage your data that in a way that fits the solutions, you have your data and you build solutions around your data infrastructure specific to the problem that you're correct the are the it, uh, are you on a mic so that they'll the, they can hear you? okay um i don't have to repeat the question okay um th this is the important part it, the fundamental difference between the industry ford auto company if you look at um you know again i i get i, I actually had a client a couple of weeks ago literally say i'm so sick of hearing about tesla okay he literally said that on in a call and you know and my reaction was, well, if you don't, on in my head, I thought, if you don't want to hear about Tesla, then you should start beating them because they're direct competitors. You know what I mean? Um, you, I, I use this analogy all the time. If you look at fundamentally the way that Tesla has architected their infrastructure, they started with infrastructure first, technology first. And then they looked at the solution second. Right now, we're working with a really large client. They're building a, a billion dollar facility on the East Coast and they've hired us to, to architect their solution and to architect their IoT infrastructure. And they started out asking about the solution first. Should we go to Rockwell and have Rockwell spec everything? Should we go to Siemens and have Siemens spec everything? Should we go to Schneider? Should we go to, who, you know, enter big company name? And our answer was no, let's, let's create a specification for your minimum technical requirements. All technology within our, within our organization has to meet our minimum technical requirements. And if you can't speak the languages we want you to speak, if you can't support, support the technology we want you to support, then we're not going to use your solution. And guess what? Very, Mark, I'm gonna say this today for the very first time. Rockwell is going to support MQTT Sparkplug B. That is an absolute guarantee. It's an absolute certainty that they're going to support MQTT Sparkplug B. Um, I could have told you four years ago that Aviva was going to support Sparkplug B. They, they decided to support it seven years too late. They had the first bite at the apple. Aviva did. Wonderwear did. Had a, bite, had a bite at the apple first. And they said no. In fact, no, they didn't say no. They said, who are you? That's what they said. Um, and, but they have, they have recently adopted um, MQTT Sparkplug B. Why? Because they realized they made a mistake. Rockwell's a little more stubborn, okay? Um, they're the, you know, and, and this is a message to the Rockwell guys. Uh, yesterday in my, my presentation, I, there were two um, statements I reserved in my head to make, to in, evoke an emotional response in the group right? My conflict theory concept. There were two that I put in my head. The views you're getting ready to hear expressed do not represent any <laughs> yeah, This is Or anyone seated at the table beside Right. This is, this is my, my opinions only. But what, I, what I, I asked the question, who is the worst automation company in the world? And I didn't mention a name. All I heard was laughter. And then everyone said, repeated the same company's name. And I could ask the question here to our chat, who is the worst automation partner, automation company on the planet? And we're gonna get one answer. I promise you it'll be one answer. Well, 
Well, Blake might have a different answer. <laughs> and 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 the and the point is this. The point is this. Isn't that a problem? Isn't that a problem for that company, right? I won't even because you're here. I'll, I won't say their name, but. Isn't it a problem if you can go within our community and you can ask everyone, who is the worst company to work with? And everyone will give you the same answer. So if you, if you work for a that question, a question yeah. from me, not knowing, right? Because right. this is not my purview, but is it because they don't have the technology? Is it because they don't have the, you know, is it, is it a hardware issue? What is it? Why, why does everybody say that and how would they fix it? Uh, so I'm going to say three things. Number one, they absolutely have technical capability. They got brilliant people working there. Okay. Um, number one is they make it really, really hard to work with them. They, it's, a, it's death by a million paper cuts. Let's say you call for help. If you don't have the right, if, you're, if your agreement isn't up to date, they don't solve your problem first and invoice you for the agreement later. You've got to get a, they've got to have a PO just to be able to answer your question. And sometimes this is a question I may spend, my company may spend $100,000 a year on my service agreement. We didn't use it for 11 straight months. It expires. No one ever called in 11 months. I make a phone call and they tell me, unless you cut us the PO for the next 100,000, we're not gonna answer your question. That happens all the time. There are stories out without our community. Number two, they don't make good products everywhere in every layer of the stack. They make some, outstanding products, but they won't even acknowledge that most of their software products are terrible products. And so as we, as engineers, we want to pick the best stuff. We want to use the best stuff and they make it really hard to work with the best stuff if they don't own it. And number three, it's their business practices. Um, it has to do with the way that they do pricing, the way they control messaging, they, the way that they misinform their consumers about how much you're actually paying and how, or how much of a discount you're actually getting on any specific SKU. It's not a partnership when you're working with them, it's transactional. And that becomes, it wears on you when you're in the business of solving problems. Uh, any, anybody else? Uh, yeah, we had a question from Automation Channel. Yep. I pinned it. Aviva Historian is costing $33,000 USD for 12,000 tags. Now I'm thinking, why would I pay this amount for just historian for SciTech or InTouch? That's a great question. There will come a day, there, there will come a day very, very short, very, very soon, where one innovative company is gonna have a single pricing model for their historian, and it's gonna be price X for everything. That, that's going to happen. Um, you, there are, when, we, when I talk to OEMs who come in and say, hey, you know, I, I, we want to be an industry 4.0 company. How do we need to change our business? I say, number one, you've got to make it easy for people to test drive your product without having to talk to a business development person. Number one, if I cannot, by the way, if I can't download your product from your website without talking to someone, then I'm not using your product. Okay, if, if I've got to fill out some form and have somebody call me and you give me some license, that tells me you are an old school company, okay? People today, the young engineers here, they don't talk to people, okay? They don't go to stores and buy stuff. That's not how it works. I bought a, I, I bought a Tesla last Friday, okay? 
I didn't. I put $100 down on a Model Y that'll be delivered three weeks from today. And when I go to get it, I'm going to walk into a lot. The app on my phone is going to notify the car that I'm there. The lights are going to blink. I'm going to walk up to it, open the door, sit down, read the paperwork, get trained on the dashboard how to drive my new car, and drive away and drop the signed papers into a, a little bin. And I will never talk to somebody. No human being will talk to me. And if you are a, if you're a technology company and you are going to rely on human beings to sell your products because you need them to trick people into buying them, you're a dying company, right? So to be an industry 4.0 company, you have to make it easy for people to test drive your products. You have to make it easy for them to give you feedback about what doesn't work. And you got to make it easy for them to get their problems solved when they run into a roadblock. You do those three things, then your solution is going to fly off the shelf. It's going to fly off the shelf. It's why we work with companies like Tatsoft. It's why we work with Canary Labs. It's why we work with Hybite. It's why we work with inductive automation. It's why we work with Flow Software. It's why we work with Opto 22. It's why we work with Easy Automation. It's why we work with PLC and PLC Next. There's 200 companies that meet our minimum requirements, and it's why we work with them. So. Can I just real quick? Um, Please. Run our, go to the website, run our pricing calculator. Uh, whoever was asking about that. Uh, Zach, will you go to Canary Labs uh, website? Yes. Share your screen. You should be 30 to 40% less. less yeah. For 12. 12 should be yeah. under 20,000, right? Uh, it's about it's about a dollar fifty a tag. You get uh, so it's the license model is pretty simple by tag by client, or you could just go unlimited because, like you said, the first historian to just say here it is, go get it. Um, we'd love to do that right now. The issue is twenty different industries. The regional water wastewater place can't write a forty thousand dollar check to do that. Right? right. They need a per tag model because they're only going to use a thousand tags. Maybe they'll use eleven hundred tags by twenty twenty eight. Right, it's just not equatable. We're pushing hard right now to move to a two or three tier model mm -hmm. where you just kind of say, Hey, here's what I want. And I am pushing hard internally at Canary. So, Stern Brothers, if you're listening, I'm talking about you. Um, <laughs> Is that accurate right there? That's yeah. accurate right there. Yep. Yeah. 21. So, it was about 33%. I'm trying the hardest I ever can right now to make 500 tag historians. Free. Free. Yes. So, so say that clear. If you're interested in that, please. I, I need, literally, I need names on petitions because I've got some very cool, I've got some very cool <laughs> founders of our company that are scared, that are, that are worried. I mean, they're not scared, but they're, they're worried that that isn't going to work. No, it'll 100% work. I know. I know. Absolutely, you know it absolutely will work. Which, yes. Which company is going to be satisfied with 500 tags once they get I know. I know. Do you, I know. Well, here, here's, here's what that 500 tag free model gets you. Okay. When inductive. No gimmicks, by right. the way. No gimmicks with this. Right. Just, here's what it gets you. You'll never even know you have it. You'll download what you say. You'll download it. It'll be licensed. Off you go. Go change the world. But I know if you do that, we're, we're selling you a million tag license. That's right. Unlimited enterprise license in three years. Here, the most, the most effective industry 4.0 solutions are developed on the plant floor by plant engineers. If you want a free 500 tag license, email me. I'll send you the one. 
You hear it? So Jeff says, if you want a free 500 tag license. Email me, even if you're in this room. Email me, I'll send you the link. Sorry, Gary, sorry. Industry, <laughs> industry 4.0, the, the fourth industrial revolution is all about unlocking potential on the plant floor. You, you read any article and you'll talk about, you know, why aren't these IIoT solutions scaling? And it's because you're not solving the problem of the operator, the mechanic, the electrician, the technician. You are not giving them tools to unlock potential on the plant floor. The, 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 if you look at, um, um, if you talk to you know, our partners, whether you're talking to Tatsoft, where you can download Factory Studio right from their website without talking to anybody and test drive it, and you don't have to license it, and you get the two-hour licensing model, or whether you're doing it with inductive automation or whether you're doing it with Flow or you're doing it with Canary, the advantage of doing that, you can, I, I encourage anyone, go to Rockwell's website right now and download anything they offer and test drive it. <laughs> go to Siemens' website, and I, now, I don't want to pick on Siemens because they're a German company and they've got, there are laws that dictate what they're allowed to just allow you to download. So I don't want to be unfair to Siemens. The, Siemens can't even choose to allow you to do that because the German governments, unless they move outside of Germany, uh, the government has um, tariff restrictions to keep you from being able to do that stuff. But I encourage you to go to Rockwell or Schneider, but you know, Phoenix Contact, right now you can go to Phoenix Contact's website. They've changed the way that they do things. You can download Phoenix's solutions right off their website without having to talk to anyone to test drive it. And that is a critical component to developing solutions on the plant floor that solve problems. Real, you have to be able to try to solve a problem for free before you can pay to solve it at scale. Okay, You have to be able to do that. Go ahead, Zach. All right. uh, do you want to move on to the next question? I do, yep. And real quick, right now, um, Zach, I'm going to be texting you a license number and a download link. Okay. You posted it's free 500 tag. Let let's skip over let's skip over Taylor's um, question and I'll answer that in a in a video. That's like a 20 minute answer. Okay. All right. Thank you for the Ta Taylor. Ta Taylor Turner. We will I will answer this question. We'll shoot a a separate video and and release it at the end of the week. <laughs> All right, uh, Jasper. Um, lo I love this guy. I think Jasper is the grad student. He's a graduate student, right? He's writing his thesis right now. Um, so he said, does someone have some thoughts or experiences with iFix? Is it any good? A comparison to Ignition would be helpful. I'm actually not going to compare it to Ignition. I'm going to compare it to Factory Studio. Uh, and here's why, because they're both, they're written in the same language, right? iFix and, and, um, and Factory Studio, they're both uh, Windows.net um, and, and Visual Basic style solutions, all right? So, my thoughts and experience on iFix. Uh, iFix is one of the reasons that General Electric doesn't make anything anymore. Okay, um, it's one more example of how GE GE's hubris is what destroyed their company. General Electric used to be the most valuable company on the planet, and they used to make more stuff than any other company in the world made. And today. GE barely makes anything, okay? Their philosophy with iFix is representative of their philosophy in general about manufacturing. There was a great article written um, maybe six or seven years ago about how GE realized too late that outsourcing all of your manufacturing is a bad idea, okay? Or offshoring, your, all your manufacturing is a bad idea. 
they took a facility they had in Indiana that made water heaters. They engineered it in the United States and General Electric, uh, General Electric um, moved the operations to China. But all the engineers stayed here in the United States. And for 10 years, they manufactured that water heater at $1,200 a unit in China. And they said, you know, we wanna, we wanna figure out a way to get that cost down to like $1,000 or maybe 900 bucks. So they brought back one of the production lines into the United States and they spun it back up in Indiana and the American engineers worked on it and they reduced the cost of that water heater to like $600 per unit. And what they realized was, oh, the problem with offshoring everything is that there is no continuous improvement to the process itself. If the engineers aren't close to the process, then they can't improve the process, right? So that, is a, that was a prevailing concept at General Electric, okay? Everything was turnkey. iFix is trash software. Any, and anybody who wants to say that iFix is a great solution, I, please come on the podcast and I'll lay out all the reasons why it's crap. Okay. And the reason it's crap is because it hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> iFix is the exact today. iFix today is the exact same platform iFix was 15 years ago. That's the problem with iFix. It's not that General Electric doesn't have smart people. It's that General Electric has the wrong philosophy. Okay. But all that's lipstick on a pig. So what David Schultz asked was even with the web HMI upgrade, the, that, doesn't un, that doesn't fundamentally change the back end, the way that you, you solve problems. The level of effort, the engineering lift to solving problems inside of iFix is significant. For example, in Factory Studio, I can, we're, you're gonna have to do custom scripting in your IIoT platform, okay? You're gonna have to write custom scripts. Everyone knows that. In Factory Studio, you can write them in .NET, you can write them in C Sharp, you can write them in Python. Okay, for the C-sharp.net, you can interchange them. So I can write in .net and then toggle my script to a C-sharp script and bring a C-sharp developer in to make modifications. In iFix, you have a single language, okay? The, the, that, and that single language makes, makes the engineering lift to solve a basic scripting problem, a, a, a simple Lambda function, too arduous. So therefore, it's the OEM that works with iFix, and it's not the consumer that works with iFix. So therefore, it is not a platform for solving problems. That's the fundamental issue. It's the philosophy of the OEM, of GE itself, okay? Um, and I'm not picking on GE specifically, although I did trash them pretty significantly there. Um, last thing I wanna talk about is the Sparkplug landscape. So a ton of people ask me about this. Um, this is from HiveMQ. Um, this is just a report of all of the companies that do Sparkplug. Do not trust what you see on here, okay? This is not inclusive of every company that supports Sparkplug. This is only the companies that notified HiveMQ that they do support Sparkplug. And this is a fraction of the total number of um, companies that support Sparkplug. Uh, the, one of the things that I'm really unhappy about here is that the OSI soft um, being included on here is misleading, okay? OSI can consume MQTT, but it cannot publish MQTT into an open infrastructure, okay? Which is, which is 
12 hours worth of development work. That's right. When so it's just, I mean, that's that's not because they don't have the technology stack to do it. That is a business decision they're, they're making. That's right. They're making a conscious decision not to do it. You lose all your SDK licensing. That's the right. Second you start to do that. That's right. Um, but I, there was a lot of questions Still related to Parker, it. Though, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the, the, just saying, change that. Come on. All right, so let me let me go through. I, I so I love that this is a good list. It's a good start. Um, there is no the best place to find out who all the partners are. Start at your start at the Eclipse Foundation and work your way work your way back. All the people who are really involved with the Sparkplug B specification have joined the the user group. Or it's not the user group. It's the no, you're right. The user can, group can at Eclipse. That, can we link that URL? Yeah. Um, Spartaplug.eclipse.org, I believe, from memory. Um, we need, listen, if you're on this Discord server, if you're, if you're part of this conversation, it's because you care about this. You care about open connectivity. Um, we need your help on the working group. We need your help to help maintain and define the specification. And that doesn't mean writing us a check. That's not what this working group is about. It means that we need you to, if you're a student, if you're, if you're, uh, in the education world, it's free to join us. Um, so just anyway, take a look at it. It's in the links. And by the way, Zach, I loaded up 500 free 500 tag historian license to that serial number. I gave you the download for okay. so the first 500 of the, on this first call. 500 people, right. or until I get fired and they <laughs> stop doing that. You know, and we we Go real quick. You know, we worked with half the companies on this list to with for them to get their Sparkplug B support. And um, I want to highlight two of them, uh, Maple Systems and Easy Automation. Um, Maple Systems delivered their Spark, Spark Plug B support from the CMT SVR, which is an, a phenomenal device. Uh, little 300, I know Dave's got one on his board. It's a little $300 appliance. It's got 200, 300 native drivers running on it. You can build local HMIs, local HMIs with a little web app. They added in their Spark Plug B support on their firmware in two days. Okay, so they, from no Sparkplug B MQTT support to full MQTT support with Sparkplug B option. So check the box, either Sparkplug B, not Sparkplug B, in two days. Easy automation, when Vikram called us, myself, um, Arlen Nipper and Vikram Kumar, who's the president of Easy Automation, they did theirs in one day. Their, their alpha was delivered to myself and Arlen in one day. Adding Sparkplug B MQTT support to existing firmware is easy. The hardest lift that Factory Studio, that Tatsoft had, was the asset model, the asset model part, right? Because the tags and the asset models were separate; they're aliases. But other than that, it's it's easy to achieve. I don't remember how long it took you guys, but it didn't take you long, no, right? It's four hours. Right. It's, the UI took a whole. I mean, that's yeah. So any uh, any questions here? Yeah, Jeffrey Schrader or Schroeder. Oh, JS, my man. He's one of our. Uh, I, I ended up the top. Okay. Uh, how does a historian compare to a time series oriented database technology such as MongoDB? Ah, this is a good question. So when we say historian, when I when I say historian, and and Jeff is probably more appropriate to really answer the big question. But the difference of for for MongoDB and a time series historian to me is MongoDB is all about being able to store and optimize massive amounts of time series data, and then it ends there. A historian provides also the analytical tools you need 
to take that time series data and turn it into some context. Mongo is the back end that you would include in some DevOps solution where you're going to do analysis. That's the fundamental difference. A historian isn't just storing the raw events. It's also giving you the tools to turn those raw events into context. It's, it's a, a complete package. If you're an influx DB person, what you've got is influx DB on the back end, and then you've got Telegraph and Grafana to unlock that time series data, right? In Canary's case, you've got the historian, then you've got the view engine, and then you've got Axiom to unlock all the potential of that data. Whereas MongoDB is just the store itself and the optimization. Yeah. And, Any? Yeah, so the other side of that too is, um, let's talk about deployment time. Let's talk about how fast can you go from installation to logging data, to contextualizing data, and learning from that data, not just in your environment, not just in your test environment, but go replicate that 20 times, 300 times. And then with very little work, roll all of that up to a another instance, more of a centralized server instance. And so would Influx work? Sure. Would MongoDB work? Yeah, you could build on that. Yep. Um, this is not a this is not a one size fits all type of application. You'll never hear me say Canary should be the solution in every single environment. Uh, anybody that's saying that to you, go the other way, please. Um, in most of our DevOps solution, most of our edge solutions, we're running InfluxDB, Telegraph, and Grafana on the edge on the board itself, on running on a Raspberry Pi to just do some local history historical analysis. But what, the second we get up to the line level, the second we get up to the plant level or the enterprise level, now we're using Canary's Historian. We're not always running Canary's Historian like on the production line itself, but we are running a Historian on the production line. And oftentimes that's InfluxDB. Um, I want to give a shout out to Mario Ishikawa. Um, he makes a very good point. Also, all of the functions and the normalization of data are part of the historian and they're not part of the database. Right. So that's another good point. And Cheryl McCrary, my hero, uh, the, the way that she breaks it down is historians are event-related analysis and the database is just a data store. MongoDB is just a data store. All right, any, any questions from you guys here? Yep. Uh, Randy Lasowski, I'm in your mentorship. Yep. So I get it. How do you handle, I've been in big publicly traded sugar plant companies versus a single dairy. You're bringing new information to the table that they've never seen before. All these departments fight each other. How do you handle that process? Okay, it's a good question. question. Right, so Randy, Randy asked the question, um, he's worked for big, huge companies. Randy is a part of uh, our mentorship, so he's a member of the community. I think we have seven people or so that are part of the of mentorship or digital mastermind already and on the Discord server. So Randy asked a question. He's worked at big, huge companies and little, small companies. The big companies always have competing interests. We're bringing new information in how do you handle the internal politics? How do you overcome those objections? Um, that is a very difficult question to answer, but I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, uh, just recently, um, during the analysis phase, the digital transformation maturity assessment phase of a very large company, we identified those people who were going to resist. There, uh, yesterday, you guys had an opportunity to see conflict theory in practice, and I pointed it out to you. The good thing about conflict theory is that it will bring out the people who oppose what you believe. Uh, through body language mostly, 
Um, so you take note of that. I, we use that during the assessment phase um, to identify the people who do not believe what we are talking about. We can support the unified namespace approach and the industry 4.0 approach empirically, right? So if we ever sat down on equal footing, you're not the director of something and I'm not the vendor, and I'm gonna be able to prove to you empirically that our architecture is correct, right? But those conversations don't always go based on empiricism. Sometimes, most of the time they're politically driven. So here's what we did in this case. We identified a very powerful person within this very large organization. And, um, and we knew that we would not be able to get through the proof of concept if that person remained part of the, the venture. So what we did was we sacrificed me, I became the bad guy, and what we did was we engaged with that person to get both of us removed from the project. That way, a new person comes in behind and implements the, the new person on our team comes in and implements it. But as long as we were able to get the, the one person politically who's going to stop us, then um, we're going to win. We're, and by win, I mean we're going to help the client win. Um, that's just one example. There are basically three ways politically. You either go around, you go over, that means go up the chain. Around means do the proof of concept outside of their purview. Over means go above their head and get them you know, um, off the project, or you go through them. Um, and through them means you gotta get rid of them. I mean, there have been many cases, I mean, there are chief information officers and CTOs that have been fired in front of me. Um, th this is a, a challenging, it's a, this is a very, very challenging business to be in. Um, when you have a vested interest, there are organizations or groups within every large organization who have a vested interest in the status quo. And they're, they may not be looking long-term for their organization. They may only be looking up to their own retirement. So it's a challenge, yes. Um, I'll take one more question, then we gotta, yeah. Digital strategy, how would you express what a company's digital strategy is? <clears throat> we have lots of companies we run into small, mid-size, nothing, paper, QuickBooks, all this kind of stuff. And uh, we see them trying to do a bunch of things, VPs of operations with a bunch of different vendors. Nobody's coordinating. I see silos popping all over the place. And I want to say, all right, let's start to figure, as you've said many times, let's define that digital strategy. How would you express that? Okay. And in fact, I'll read one to you. Here, here's one that we just... Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, actually, I can't read it to you because I would have to show you who it is and I don't have NDAs with all you guys. Uh, all right, here's what a digital strategy has to say. A digital strategy has to say, what is the value to our, uh, of data and information to our organization? How are we going to use data and information? And how will it change our business? That's what our digital strategy needs to say, okay? What is the value? How will we use it? How will it change our business? So normally it's a three-sentence thing. Um, a three-sentence statement, and it may be like, we are going to use agreed-upon data to make, to run our business using real-time information, uh, real-time actionable information that's accessible to the stakeholder when they need it, where they need it, and how they need it. That's an example of a digital strategy. It's something you want to refer back to to say, when someone says, this piece of data needs to be on a need-to-know basis. There's some data, by the way, that's need-to-know. Sorry, and most of it's listed in Sarbanes-Oxley, right? So if you're an American company and you're, and you're publicly traded, Sarbanes-Oxley says that you really, you can't share financial information with just anybody, okay? Because they could use that 
to, to cook the books on, on Wall Street. So, but most data is not on it, should not be on a need to know basis. Your digital strategy needs to declare what data is need to know and everything else is available to everyone. Okay. All right, any parting questions? We're three minutes over. Zach? Um, there was one from Bell. Where does Litmus Automation fit in the stack? But I said we'll get to that next week. Yeah, uh, Lit Litmus is like Sorba IoT. Great. Litmus is an outstanding solution, but it's a digital thread solution. So if you want to uh, if you want to take a look, uh, Litmus Automation would be very similar to like AWS um, when on the AWS versus Azure video. Uh, Litmus is architected very similar to AWS, where the but Litmus has a mechanism to get what was learned back to the edge, but not all the data back to the edge. But it does support the minimum technical requirements so we could transmit all the data that's in the cloud back to a namespace on the plant floor, which is necessary to unlock potential. So, all right, uh, Jeff Nepper, wanna say thank you for joining us. You guys, thank you for humoring us and sitting through this session. Um, thank you everybody from the community for interacting with us. If you're not a member of the Discord server, uh, link will be in the description of the video, and um, uh, we will 